there's a lot of gray area with SIBO in terms of how like general dysbiosis overlaps with it. And as you said, like it's never just SIBO. There's usually kind of a bigger issue at play, even if it's not necessarily causing the issue in and of itself since we talked about those other three buckets that are a little bit more tangible for how things go off the rails. But I think it's so dangerous for people to be told that the low FODMAP diet is the key to healing because a lot of them stay on it for too long. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. Now, before we dive in today, I want to just quickly share that for the entire month of January, while I'm still on maternity leave with my little man and our little family, I will be focusing on one episode per week and they will roll out every Tuesday. Now, I was able to make sure that December had two episodes per week, but to make things a little bit easier, I'm going down to one episode per week for the next three weeks. That first episode this month was last Tuesday. And I just wanted to just give you a heads up in case you were looking for those Friday episodes. And I just want to say thank you so much for your incredible understanding. All right. Now, today we are talking about your digestive system, the source where vital nutrients are being absorbed but also where many of us struggle with gas, bloating, discomfort, among many other symptoms. Now, one of the ways in which we end up having issues is due to gut dysbiosis and SIBO, which stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Now, SIBO is exactly what it sounds like. It's a type of dysbiosis, which simply means an imbalance in the trillions of bacteria that dominate the gut. In the case of SIBO, however, it's not necessarily the imbalance between good beneficial bacteria and bad pathogenic bacteria, though it can be part of it. Rather, the main problem is the location of the bacteria in the digestive tract, not the type. So when unwanted bacteria begin feasting in your intestinal lining in the small intestines, the result is often leaky gut disease, which is an increased permeability of the lining of the small intestine. Now, the byproduct of leaky gut disease were large food particles that are not meant to be in the bloodstream, seep into the bloodstream, often leads to food sensitivities, food intolerances, and autoimmunity, to name a few. Now, some of these unfortunate symptoms that point specifically to SIBO include bloating, gas, burping, reflux, and other discomfort after meals. Now, constipation and diarrhea are also common, but usually you have one or the other. Now, given that SIBO is affecting millions of people, I wanted to invite Phoebe Lapine, the author and podcast host of SIBO Made Simple, to share the lowdown on SIBO and how to address it head on. But before I welcome her to the show, I want to quickly sing her praises. Phoebe is a writer, gluten-free chef, culinary instructor, Hajimoto's advocate, and the voice behind the award-winning blog, Feed Me Phoebe. She's the author of The Wellness Project and has chronicled her journey with autoimmune disease. And SIBO Made Simple is a patient Bible to healing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. She is the host of SIBO Made Simple podcast. She's also appeared on Food & Wine, Self Magazine, Cosmopolitan, and many other publications. And I'm so excited for her new book, 
SIBO Made Simple, which has got amazing recipes and really everything you need to conquer this particular bacterial issue. So let's bring Phoebe on to the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Phoebe Lapine. How are you doing today, girl? I'm good. I'm hanging in there. How are you? I'm doing good. I am so excited for our conversation. I actually haven't had a guest come on and talk about SIBO. We talk a lot about digestive health here on the show because it is so critical, as you know more than anybody. But I know this is an issue that comes up for a lot of people, diagnosed or undiagnosed. And I'm really excited to shed light on what we can do to help support our gut, especially when we're dealing with SIBO. Now, before we get into all of that, all the nitty gritty, I would love to have you just take a moment and share that defining moment with us that led you to do this work that you're doing in the world? Oh my gosh. Well, there have been a few defining moments along the way. Long story short, I have been a food woman of many trades for the last decade plus. And it was ironically my love of food that prevented me for many years from actually taking a lot of my mysterious symptoms seriously. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis when I was 22. And eventually kind of those symptoms caught up to me right as my food career was taking off. And I'd say the culminating moment was somewhere along the way there when I was just debilitated with pain, like pretty much after every single meal, which was more than an occupational hazard and ended up trying to do the functional medicine route, but really feeling kind of overwhelmed by that path as much as I knew that food could be medicine and should be medicine. It also opened up kind of a whole can of worms, as you know, that everything in my apartment was going to kill me. I was in my mid-20s and didn't, couldn't really afford to go all in on the healthy functional medicine lifestyle at the time. So I decided to take a step back and try and figure out how I could slowly accomplish each one of my wellness problem areas one by one. And so I actually came up with this year-long experiment that ended up being my last book called The Wellness Project, which chronicles kind of how I went about doing it by making one change one month at a time. So that was kind of my like chapter one of my health and really got me talking to a lot of people in my audience who were just in it for the food for a while and then, you know, came out of the woodwork with all these autoimmune diseases and sharing, you know, their experiences and their stories. And then ironically, about six months after my book came out, I started coming down with these mysterious digestive symptoms again, you know, ones that I thought I had kind of overcome. I was, you know, burping a lot after each meal, which was like a little bit strange that hadn't really happened before, was really constipated, well, kind of through like the roller coaster of constipation, diarrhea, and just like felt this really uncomfortable distension in my belly. And yet, you know, all of my research on the microbiome and good gut health that I had done for my previous book, you know, sent me in the direction of, you know, just like doubling up on the probiotics and eating a ton of fermented food. I was already adding so much of it to my meals anyway. And eventually I kind of started to tune in and be like, hmm, I don't think these ingredients are making me feel very well. And lo and behold, went, got a full workup, 
was diagnosed with SIBO, something that I'd kind of heard of in the ether, but didn't really drill down on because I tend to really, you know, go deep on the problems that I personally face <laughs> so that I can create answers for my audience. And yeah, that just led me down the rabbit hole for SIBO. And I wrote a few series of posts on my site about it. And the response was kind of instantaneous and crazy. Just again, all these people coming out of the woodwork, no surprise that there was a big overlap with my Hashimoto's audience, um, which we can talk about in a little bit. But people were just so relieved to have any sort of resources since there is, you know, stuff on the internet, but it's kind of a little bit hard to navigate and there's also just a lot of I think depressing stories on the internet when it comes to SIBO just a lot of desperation and so I was happy to be able to provide kind of a very comprehensive and nuanced view of my personal experience with it and then that dovetailed into a podcast I have a SIBO made simple podcast and now a book SIBO made simple as well which is coming out in January Hmm. And quick question, because wow, what a what a journey, you know, that all <laughs> relating to the gut. I'm in remission for Haji's as well. And clearly gut was one of the biggest players. Um, and I did do the full functional medicine route and I did do the full <laughs> autoimmune protocols and all the things and and definitely cleared it. But yes, it, it can be very overwhelming, like where to start. When you end up getting diagnosed with SIBO, did your hajis end up flaring back up as well? Or have you seen that with some of your the people that have been on you, just your community? Unfortunately, my antibodies are still something that has never fully been in remission. And for me, I think it's really just my nervous system and you know, stress in the gut. There are so many elements that can contribute to discomfort there. And then, you know, therefore a hashi's flare. But I actually think it was two cases of food poisoning that I had had over the course of the previous year that were probably part of my root causes. And then of course, you know, so many of the, there are a lot of risk factors associated with Hashi's that then contribute to SIBO. But no, I thought that actually maybe SIBO had been an issue that had been the case for a little bit longer than I'd given it credit for. and was maybe one of the things that was causing my antibodies to remain kind of like hovering around in like the 300 area. And then peaking at times of like intense stress, which a book launch can also contribute to. But no, I haven't really, since I'm not a practitioner, I don't have a ton of one-on-one -on -one, like in-depth conversations with a lot of members of my audience to be able to answer that in terms yeah. of I was just curious because I know that there that that kind of you talked about that exchange of how like you know women are like yep doing dealing with this autoimmune condition driven by these gut issues whether it's SIBO or it's a parasite or it's leaky gut or it's gut dysbiosis like this imbalance is creating the immune system to go into hyperdrive and then it accidentally targets the wrong target you know and so I, I was just curious just because I know that so often a lot of my audience members are not only just dealing with gut issues, gut infections, but then also they you have that autoimmune component as well. And I saw that you had, you definitely connected the dots there. Clearly we're talking specifically about SIBO today, but, you know, just trying to just lend to the dot connecting of like, oh, if this is popping and this is popping, it's probably it's interconnected. Well, I think SIBO has been so fascinating to me because it is really like the nexus of so many things. Like if you look at the list of risk factors or, you know, concurrent diseases 
the list is like, it's hundreds of bullet points long and we don't really know like the full connection, but it all does come down to inflammation. And so there's obviously a huge overlap with a lot of autoimmune conditions in SIBO. And I think it's such a chicken or the egg thing because SIBO can cause leaky gut, autoimmune diseases can stem from leaky gut, but it doesn't seem like, you know, since the autoimmune disease is risk factor for SIBO, we can't blame them all on SIBO. And yet SIBO also makes you a higher risk for developing an autoimmune disease because of the leaky gut component. I've been trying to get to the bottom of a lot of these chicken or the egg things on my podcast episode by episode. And we can drill down on a few of them, but yeah, it's just- I don't think we still know yet. those things. No, we definitely <laughs> don't. We don't still know. And, I'm, and at the end of the day, I think the gut is kind of that epicenter that we always need to be focusing on no matter what we've got going on. Okay. So one of the things that I know to be true and that I know you know to be true is that women are more susceptible to SIBO. Talk to me about why. Okay. Well, I think there are some big lifestyle issues that, you know, may seem a little bit more nebulous, but, you know, stress, sleep, those are two big Check, check, check. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. And women, we just like, as part of society, <laughs> have a lot of burden in terms of stress. And of course, our hormonal cycles are much more complicated than our male counterparts. I mean, you're very pregnant right now, I'm sure. Yes. I know my husband said to me the other day about how he was tired. And I was like, step it back. Step it back real fast. <laughs> like, And it's just so funny. We just, there's so much that we're doing all the time, whether I'm, you know, about to pop or not, my list ain't any smaller. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, to just do like a little recap for those who are maybe not as familiar with SIBO, there are kind of three main buckets for where that long bolted list of risk factors fall into. And one of them is bacteria not being killed. So we have all of these safeguards in our digestive system, the saliva, the you know, various bile and enzymes, of course, our stomach acid. And so low stomach acid is a big risk factor. And then there are so many things that can contribute to low stomach acid, stress being one of them. And then the second kind of big category is this thing called the migrating motor complex, which is like the street sweeper of our small intestines. And so if that breaks down, and there are, again, so many different conditions that can lead to impaired motility and that migrating motor complex, MMC not working properly, but stress being also, again, one of the correlating issues. And, you know, at sleep, again, it's like the sister issue to stress since cortisol levels can affect the sleep cycle, as you know, but so much of our digestive systems mechanics happen in the night, you know, the liver cleaning the blood. And if we're not detoxing properly, that can also have a whole halo effect. Estrogen dominance is a big bullet point, I think, for women in general, which, you know, again, can stem from so many different things, liver not functioning optimally, if you don't metabolize coffee very well, that can be a big overlapping issue since you correct me if I'm wrong, so I'm not an actual medical professional, but we use a lot of the same enzyme resources. Our liver uses the same enzyme resources to metabolize coffee as it does estrogen. And some people, I'd say a lot of women you know, are, have issues with coffee for that reason, but it just comes down to the way you metabolize it. Some people have 
no problem at all. A lot of people, and I think a lot of people with Hashi's and kind of hormone related issues tend to struggle. So, and then of course, personal care products with all the chemicals that mimic, mimic estrogen in the body, you know, you can just have a whole cascade of issues there. And then hormonal birth control, so many people are on that, which changes the whole nature of the microbiome and leads to leaky gut. Again, it's just a perfect storm. And then there's Hashimoto's, which affects 75% women and autoimmune diseases in general, which affects 75% women, you know, for many of these probably overlapping reasons and ones that we still can't completely explain. Are you also seeing a link, you know, we, I know we haven't fully identified endometriosis as an autoimmune condition, but I feel like it's in that category big time. Oh, definitely. And are you, are you guys, are you seeing that connection as well, especially with this? Yeah. I had a, just, just curious. Cause I, again, I just want women to kind of start to see the connection, which I'm loving that we're doing. doesn't mean we have all the answers, but we do or the why behind all these connections, but that there is a connection and it's worth looking at all of this as well. Now with motility, I know you said the motility is definitely decreased. In terms of symptomology, are we with kind of that roller coaster of constipation, diarrhea, constipation, diarrhea, like that's the kind of thing that we'll be seeing going on there? Yeah. I think specifically with Hashimoto's, a lot of people experience the constipation yes. more again because of a lot of the nutrient deficiencies, like low B12 actually prevents the MMC from working optimally. So that's another kind of overlapping one. And then, you know, I think the Hashimoto's vicious cycle chicken or the egg is so interesting because, you know, we need our gut to be in good shape in order to convert T4 to T3, our inactive to our active thyroid hormone. But then we also need T3 to maintain a lot of these functions that we're talking about in the gut, including the MMC. So I think that can be a real vicious cycle. And it's also one, you know, I struggled for a long time early on with my diagnosis about whether or not to go on medication at all. And I think probably one of the reasons why I had such a tough case is because I resisted for many years and kind of understanding more about like the duality between the gut and your thyroid hormones. Like I actually think that's an argument for just getting on the medication and seeing if that can just give you a boost. Because otherwise, again, it's just going to be that vicious cycle. And sometimes you just need something to help you along. I agree 100%. As, as much as I would love to just like grab my magic wand and just be like, here, let's put you on this autoimmune protocol here. Let's just clean up your gut. None of it's easy. And if you don't have enough T3 to run the processes that your gut needs to actually function or run cellular metabolism on a cellular level, just getting your cells to do what they're supposed to do. They're like, what am I doing here? That is a hot mess of a situation too. And so, yeah, I'm a big proponent of if you've got low thyroid and whether it's Hajimoto's or not, until we figure out what's going on, we got to bump that, that, that T3 up. And then also in terms of supporting yourself in some way, I mean, constipation just adds to that vicious cycle too. Obviously, you're going to suffer from constipation if a lot of that machinery is not working properly, but then you could have the downwind effect of estrogen dominance because you're not eliminating. And so again, it's like, I think that sometimes you can just rely on a few things. I mean, either a few like natural laxative type things that I've leaned on in the past, but sometimes you just need help like getting up onto a higher plateau of healing. Absolutely. Yeah. Magnesium citrate will, will definitely yep. support, but we, you know, we got to get to the crux of what's going on as well. 100% agree with that. 
Okay, so we've kind of laid out the landscape and kind of connected the dots between all the things, also showed why we do see women have more, more prone or have a predisposition towards SIBO than men. A lot of lifestyle complications and then hormone complications, all the things kind of meld together here. Let's talk a little bit about speaking into the, you talked about the three different buckets of like where, where SIBO is coming from. Yeah. I actually didn't touch on the last bucket, which I meant to get back to because you brought up endometriosis, which I think really speaks to that last bucket, which is structural issues. And I think it's one that's really I don't know. There's such a disconnect for many people, I think, between alignment and just like our physical integrity and some of these digestive issues. But of course, like it's so our physical ability to move food through our body is so reliant on being in alignment. But so things in that category, endometriosis and, you know, having huge cysts and such in that area and constrictions can definitely add to, you know, your intestines not being able to move food through properly. And also just the laparoscopic surgeries associated, any sort of laparoscopic surgery, be it a C-section or a hysterectomy or any number of things, bariatric surgery of any kind, even if it's done by an incredible professional, like sometimes you just can't help but have some internal adhesions form and you just never know if they're going to be, you know, constricting your intestines in certain places and forcing things not to move through. So yeah, the structural issues would be the last bucket and endometriosis is a perfect example, some overlapping conditions that could contribute to that. Hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think we ever think about the structural concerns unless yeah. it was around surgery, you know, that that's really obvious structural concerns, but even myofasciitis can be happening. I always tell people, I think we all need, you know, somebody working on us, you know, kind of just making sure that we're not just glued, like literally glued together, you know, that we've become glue. And so uh, my husband was having really severe myofasciitis in his abdominal area this year. And we were investigating, investigating, like, is this a gut issue? Is this a myofasciitis, like a more abdominal issue? Is the abdominal issue affecting the gut? Like we were just going down this, this whole process of figuring out, it took us months and then we found the right practitioner and the right person who could do the work. And, and luckily he wasn't, he wasn't seeing a lot of gut issues, but you know, occasionally he was making decisions, you know, (laughs) and and that would, that would throw him off. And so, but yeah, I mean, especially with women who unfortunately end up having to have a lot more surgical intervention where these adhesions really do happen. And we're talking about just things getting stuck, like you said. And that's so often we're not, we're not thinking about that, the, the stuckness of it. I actually think the body worker I saw to kind of help me through some structural issues, I think it was the the most profound element of my healing. And I can tell people a story because it is kind of funny, but this was a long, this was a while after I confirmed a negative SIBO breath test and was pretty much, you know, eating a normal diet again. I had just been to Paris with my husband for our anniversary. And so I was Cheese, you know, please. <laughs> I was eating macarons. I was eating butter. You know, I was really <laughs> straying from the optimal diet, but I felt fine. I had like maybe one flare there, but I'll take it. That's fine. But I got back and, you know, was back to my normal, healthy schedule, eating, you know, great anti-inflammatory meals, working out every day. And all of a sudden, 
I was just in so much pain and in that horrible cycle of constipation, diarrhea. And I couldn't figure out why, because I was like, there's nothing that I'm really doing in my lifestyle that would lead to this. I mean, I'm going to Pilates every day. I'm just doing so many things that are quote unquote healthy on paper. And I ended up having some lower back pain that was not associated, ended up at a woman who does kind of very specific type of body work. And she like took one, not one look, one, one feel of my abdominals. And it turns out all of those Pilates I was doing was so intense. I just completely like caved in and my vagus nerve like was being crushed. I was creating so much constriction in my abdominal area, which, and this is all not to say that like crunches are bad for you and like you can't strengthen your core in some ways, but you know, sometimes, and I'm in New York city, exercise can be a little bit extreme here, but if you're really sensitive and it also, I think if your alignment already has some things working against it, something like that, as simple as, you know, creating even more rigidity in that area can really disrupt things. And I literally was night and day. She worked on me the next day. I was fine. I 100% agree. And I know this is, and I'm not trying to throw another word, another thing into it, but it's just something to consider. There's so many great body workers who can go in and they can feel, they can actually palpate inflammation around the organs. They can palpate where muscles are over firing. Maybe you're even having muscle spasms and they can just feel that immediately. It, it, it may take a moment to find that practitioner who can go on in and really kind of clear things out. Maybe it's even an acupuncturist who can clear energy meridians. But if you're trying all these other things and still you're not feeling resolution, that's going to be the place to go and look too. Because at the end of the day, this is all just connective tissue and fascia and soft tissue muscles. And at the, and then we got to make sure those are working, which is a whole different ballgame. That's not the bacteria situation. I could definitely, exactly. it, that's a whole different, I call it a more that would be the um, mechanics. Yes. The mechanics of everything. But you can just, I mean, I, I, at the time I could have just gone up and be like, am I having a SIBO relapse? Like, am I, you know, was it just dormant? Am I just someone who has chronic SIBO? Cause that's really what it felt like again, but no, I mean, it was just vagus nerve being compressed and some things being out of alignment. And I still see this practitioner, you know, for like tune-ups every now and then I truly believe she's like one of the best people I have in my, on my team. Awesome. I love that. Okay. So now we've got our buckets. And now we kind of know what levers to pull here. Talk to me, where do we start first? I'm, I'm guessing you said that your test came back negative on the breath test. Was this when you did have it or when you knew you were clear? When I knew I was clear. Oh, yes. okay, no, okay. I got okay. a positive breath test first that confirmed the diagnosis. Yeah. I mean, I get a lot of people through my site who, you know, are self-diagnosing and I actually really do think that there's a lot to be said for the breath test. It's an an imperfect science at this point. It's a little bit of the wild, wild west, but it's the best we have. And I think it's important to know what you're dealing with before you go into a kill protocol, which, you know, even if you're using herbs can be, you know, destructive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Definitely with kill protocols in particular. Okay. So we, we take the test, we take the breath test. It is a yes. It's confirming what we know to be true. Now, what, now what do we do? And I get you, we can't give the whole kit and caboodle one. It's, it's, we don't even have that kind of time. Um, And you have an entire beautiful book dedicated to all of this and a podcast where people get to go really into the nitty gritty, but where, where do we start? Cause I know that there can be some conflicting information out there and we could easily go down the big rabbit hole and not end up where we want to be at the end of it. 
So the three main buckets that are talked about most, I think, in medicine is the conventional antibiotic route, rifaximin, zyfaxin being the best option if you have hydrogen dominant SIBO. And if you have methane SIBO, you can pair rifaximin with another more conventional antibiotic. Rifaximin is actually thought to be a eubiotic, so it's not killing indiscriminately in the same way as a broad spectrum antibiotic. It's sticking around the small intestine and they've seen that it hasn't really done a whole lot of damage to the balance of flora in your large intestine. So it's not thought of as kind of like a bad option. I know a lot of people, there's a lot of stigmatization of antibiotics, rightfully so. And you'll see in the list of risk factors for SIBO, antibiotic use is one of them, but rifaximin doesn't really fall into that bucket. The other two options that you might have to pair with it for methane SIBO do fall into that bucket. So just something to keep in mind. And then there's a whole spectrum of herbs that you can use that work just as well clinically, they seem to be the case. And then there was recently a study that confirmed it that worked just as well as some of these prescription antibiotics and are a little bit cheaper. Rifaximin can be quite expensive, which is in you know the con category. Then the third bucket is something called the elemental diet, which is an actual treatment, not really a diet in the traditional sense. It's basically a smoothie that has distilled all of your nutrients down to micronutrients, their most essential form, so that they're assimilating so high up in your intestines that if you have bacteria there, they don't really have a chance to feast off of anything. So that involves in terms of a therapeutic dose uh, or not a therapeutic dose as a treatment you just getting all of your nourishment from that shake for two weeks straight which for a lot of people myself included as a foodie and a chef don't seem to gravitate towards but it really comes down there are a lot of different options out there and it really comes down to lifestyle again if money is an issue you may be weighing that if you wanted to do something quote-unquote natural that may push you in one direction some people you know who have really high gases will just want to want the most effective option and elemental diet actually is the most effective for reducing high numbers of gases quickly so yeah i have more information even just on my website on those options dr allison seebecker is an amazing resource she's like one of the queens of SIBO out there on the web and she has lots of things lots of resources on her website for you know some of these nitty-gritty treatment options and that's really just really figuring out and picking your path So like the pros and cons, what does it all look like? Depending on what your symptomology is, you know, you take all of these things into account, your finances, all these. And how sensitive you are. I think that's a big factor too. And also if you think that there could be other things going on, like some of these herbs are a little bit more broad spectrum. They have antifungals in them. There are certain compound protocols that you can do that also have antifungals in them. And then the elemental diet can also be effective on a yeast overgrowth. And parasite, you know, and a, a couple different yeah, things. Yeah, because I really mean, what are the rest. odds you just have SIBO? Exactly. It's never really just SIBO. Yeah, <laughs> <Really> exactly. <not. laughs> so, yeah, so just a heads up, there's probably other pathogens involved in this process. And with the herbs, you, like you said, if it's a fungal pathogen, whether or it's a parasite pathogen, and, you know, just trying to figure out and navigate Unfortunately, I don't think the antibiotics are going to knock those pathogens out as well. Um, you're going to have to, you probably have to do the herb route too, along with that. So yeah, and so it gets a lot more nuanced. Juggle back and forth. Like there's usually a few courses for people if you have really high gas levels, especially. 
Okay. Awesome. Good to know. And then definitely important to continue to go down the rabbit hole and do, do the research for sure. Okay. So talk to me about, let's just talk specifically, let's say the shakes out (laughs) for two weeks. (laughs) And I get that. Let's just specifically, let's connect about the feet, about SIBO. What kind of foods should we really be focusing on? And I know that just the short list is probably not going to be enough of what needs to be done, but just kind of giving people a sense of like, I know that there's definitely probably a little bit of inflammatory food restriction that we're looking at here. Yeah. So I think the most popular approach, dietary approach is the low FODMAP diet. It's the most data backed for IBS. And, you know, it's thought that 60% of all IBS is SIBO. So therefore you can kind of extrapolate that it's going to be similarly effective for SIBO. And I think it's the, it's the diet that has the most resources out there, like in the IBS camp. So it's what a lot of practitioners recommend and lead towards certainly what my MD put me on. But I do think that it's a little bit problematic in that, as you mentioned, it doesn't necessarily tackle some of the big allergens. You can still eat a low FODMAP diet and still have gluten and dairy to some extent. Yeah. And that's always been really confusing to me. I mean, when I first heard about the low FODMAP diet, again, it was like, I was researching my other book. I didn't know anything about SIBO and I was so confused by it. And I actually was at a wedding with a friend of mine from college, who's now like the head of gastroenterology at a hospital. And we were talking low FODMAP diet as one does, you know, at a cocktail at party. A wedding. Yeah, I've seen yeah it. exactly. And he was so encouraged by it. And I was encouraged by, you know, a member of the mainstream medical establishment being excited about any diet. But at the same time, I was like, I don't understand it because you look at the list of foods and then you look at the list of foods that pretty much every microbiome scientist say are good for the microbiome and they're complete opposites. So honestly, SIBO to me explains why a low FODMAP diet is effective in terms of symptoms because if you have perfectly normal bacteria in the wrong place too far up in your digestive tract and you feed them the foods that they enjoy most, then of course you're going to have some sort of, of gas as part of that and having it get trapped too far up your intestinal tract as well. But I also, you know, there's, I think a lot of gray area with SIBO in terms of how like general dysbiosis overlaps with it. And as you said, like, it's never just SIBO. There's usually kind of a bigger issue at play, even if it's not necessarily causing the issue in and of itself, since we talked about those other three buckets that are a little bit more tangible for how things go off the rails. But I think it's so dangerous for people to be told that the low FODMAP diet is the key to healing because a lot of them stay on it for too long. And then there is research that the longer you stay on the low FODMAP diet, and if I think it's like something more than two or three months, then it really does start to have negative effects on your large intestine and the bacteria there. So I think you have to be careful with it. And I also think that since it's so restrictive and it's such like a chopped mystery box list of ingredients, there is kind of a simpler place to start that's just like a little bit more in the right anti-inflammatory direction of taking out a lot of those big allergens, which you know, SIBO can cause leaky gut, which can cause a lot of food sensitivities. And I'm also kind of a believer in that that's kind of a chicken or the egg situation as well, since again, the autoimmune disease seems to be a huge overlapping risk factor. You know, I think if you already have a food sensitivity and 
you experience kind of that ongoing fog of war with your immune system and your gut, like, of course, the intestinal line is going to be damaged. Of course, your migrating motor complex is not going to function as optimally. I don't know. I think that arrow goes, even though it's like, I don't have any <laughs> data to <laughs> give you on it. I do think that there's something to be said for that side of the cycle as well. So I think personally, just focusing on the anti-inflammatory elements, taking out maybe a few high FODMAP foods, like I know onion, garlic, and legumes can be, can be the most problematic for people, you know, just kind of taking out a few of the buckets and then focusing on maybe taking out a few allergens. If you've never done kind of an allergen focused elimination diet, you can always start there. And then there is some kind of debate in the SIBO community about how to layer these diets on top of treatment because you know the thought is these herbs these antibiotics they're trying to kill the bacteria so we don't want to take away all the food sources and risks the bacteria going into hibernation we want them to be you know alive and well and ripe for <laughs> destruction so there are practitioners who go about it a whole host of different ways. There's kind of no right or wrong way to go about it. Again, as you said before, it really comes down to the individual's sensitivity, kind of where the rest of the gut is at. I think how well someone like is detoxing because if you're killing willy-nilly, it can be really harsh on the system if you're not eliminating properly. For some of those people, layering diet on top can help because you're just going to be limiting the symptoms and maybe you don't want to kill willy-nilly right out of the gate because that can just be really overwhelming for your system. Hmm. I 100% agree. Yeah. I remember looking at the FODMAP for the first time and I was like, this makes no sense to me. Like, how is, how is it that these major allergens are in here? You know, you so often when I take patients off of dairy and gluten, we see in, in processed sugars, like we see a massive shift. And not to say that that sulfur-containing foods and beans aren't lighting people up as well too, because they definitely are. And that's a, a different, you know, looking at that as well and just really figuring out, is that something that affects you or not? But yeah, I, I was always very curious because so often I'm working with patients who with an autoimmune condition or really severe leaky gut issues. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can put someone on the FODMAP without, without removing those big allergens because I already know they have those as allergens, you know? So it's been really, really fascinating. So I really appreciate the clear up as well, kind of figuring out and how different practitioners are navigating that depending on what's going on with the person and what other, what other, other issues or compromises are involved as well. And ultimately, I mean, where I sit, I'm like, I'm a curator of information and my book is really just a resource to help you navigate whatever path that you either feel is right for you or that your practitioner feels is right for you. So all my recipes are actually all free of the major allergens, not nuts and seeds, but they're all pretty adaptable, but there's no gluten, dairy, soy, corn, a little bit soy optional, I say, because there's a little bit of tamari that you can use here and there. But really, that layered on top of the low FODMAP diet is the approach that I've given people. And then for every recipe, I have an onwards note for how to incorporate a high FODMAP ingredient at kind of a low enough quantity that it might not give you trouble, but allow you to expand your diet a little bit, either maybe out like on the back of a low FODMAP elimination diet or just, you know, in seeing how you can kind of dial down those quantities a little bit. That's the thing with the low FODMAP diet that I think is beneficial to some extent is that it really just teaches you that like diversity is the spice of life. And, you know, we don't want to be overloading our system with large quantities of one ingredient, which I think 
ultimately, if you end up adding back all of the vegetables and plants under the sun can be kind of, you know, a good learning to keep in mind going forward as you live a life of a beautifully diverse diet. I love that. And I love, I was going to ask you specifically about your recipes inside of this new book too, because I I was like, you know, taking all this information and then curating and then being a foodie, you know, kind of what was your approach based on what you're seeing is working based on all the research that you've done and based on what feels like in high integrity for you, right? Because it's, it's, you know, especially when it comes to a book, it's really, you know, you know, where is our philosophy? Where's our deepest truth? And how do we stand in our highest integrity and, and really, and then also be able to serve our people, you know? And so I was really curious to see kind of, you know, where your recipes landed based on all the things that you had to take into account, which I think is really awesome. I love where you landed. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, I love that you put it that way because it is where I come at it. I'm not as concerned. I did have to do a lot of, you know, make sure that everything really did fit within the low FODMAP diet. But that honestly is not the highest priority in terms of what I want to give people. I think a lot of people who get diagnosed with a chronic illness, they may not even be cooking to begin with. So I always want to make sure that a recipe is easy to execute works every time, tastes super good, just as good as any recipes you'll get, you know, from the best cookbook authors out there, since that's what my background is to begin with. And then I always want to make sure it's anti-inflammatory nature. So it has a lot of color, has a lot of good ingredients in there. There's a lot of low FODMAP recipes out there that are just not healthy. They have, you know, cheese and not that the cheese is bad, but you know, they're just kind of low FODMAP versions of comfort food. And there's nothing wrong with comfort food. I'm kind of trying to just layer on kind of anti-inflammatory element to the comfort food as well. And to do that, I mean, I take a lot of inspiration from other cultures. It's a very multicultural cookbook. There's a lot of influence from Asian cuisines, from Indian cuisine. And yeah, I think that really gives people a lot of excitement and fun flavors. There's tons of fresh herbs in there. Obviously, if you're going to want to be taking it in pill form, you want to be eating it too. And yeah, just kind of adding as much as I'm subtracting so that hopefully people don't even notice the subtractions. I love that. And also, again, if it's a lot of women who are struggling with this and we know that they have other concerns and issues as well, it's just, you know, creating low, lower levels of inflammation in the body is always the win, you know? And so I, I 100% agree with you as you were naming off, yeah, I have a book coming out soon and we have recipes in it and I, you know, so much goes into this as you know, and, you know, removing all the inflammatory, just all the same things you said, you know, nuts are not out, nuts and seeds aren't out as well in mine, but they're easy to remove if someone wanted to, but at the end of the day, are they, are these easy recipes? Are they delicious recipes, lots of yummy herbs and fresh vegetables, like all kinds of colors and like all of that is being taken into consideration, but also knowing that these foods are ultimately going to be just so nourishing at the same time. And so just, you know, again, it's, it's, it's really about where you land on it. And so that is really exciting. Anything else that we should know about this book? I feel like we, I love this conversation because I know this is so nuanced and it's important that we... I know that you wish and I wish that it was just this five steps, do the five steps and you're good. And it's just not, it's not that because we know that the gut is so interconnected with so many other things, but anything else you would love us to know about what you've done with this book? Yeah. Well, I will say for the recipes, like, I think that 
so much more than the what you're eating is the how you're eating it, especially when it comes to SIBO. But I think in general with digestive health, especially for people with really damaged guts who struggle with like assimilating nutrients and just digesting things to begin with. So I do have some raw salads in the book, but like generally I've had a mind towards making sure that things are partially broken down, pureed, cooked, lightly steamed, what have you, just so that those with a really damaged gut don't have to do too much of the work themselves. And I also like, you know, I know a lot of people will, you know, probably go through because I read comments also on Amazon of like other people's gut books. And there are always people who are very upset, you know, like I can't digest that ingredient, you know, like I made this recipe and I reacted. And I think that so often people don't necessarily ask themselves, well, okay, how is it prepared? If it's a vegetable, were there seeds, were there skins on it? Was it cooked? Like, people get so down on themselves and worried about reactivity. And I would just say before you ever take something completely out of your diet, like an ingredient, because you feel you can't tolerate it, first question how you're preparing it. So de-seeding, taking the skin off definitely helps. Cooking definitely helps. And more so than cooking, just like pureeing it helps. So, you know, I would try different things. And this also goes for adding things back into your diet that you may be worried about, like keep some of those ideas in mind. And then also, yes, say positive affirmations and reassure yourself that, you know, food didn't necessarily cause your SIBO and new foods are not going to make it come back. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, and I get, you know, when you, you have, you've been in that boat where you are struggling and it's so frustrating. And I've been in the boat where I've been struggling and it's so frustrating. And, and, um, you know, I think really that, that underlying message too, is just ownership owning your own health, owning what you know to be true for yourself. And if you got to swap something, swap something too. You know, if it was not, this food's not going to work then swap it out. You know, we as practitioners or experts and, and researchers, we're going to do the best we can with what we got for the majority of the people. And, you know, it's not going to work. It's not going to work for everybody exactly 100%. Like you've got to be able to make those, those modifications. And I've, I've always been a fan of flexibility because I know that not everyone's going to fall into the same bucket. And so definitely grace towards the authors <laughs> who, who scrutinize over this for months and months and months and months and, and try to make the best decision that they can. And, and having grace. I've seen, I've, I've read a lot of those Amazon reviews as well. <laughs> it's, we're just, it's, it's, it's an impossibility to nail it for everybody all the time. And so I appreciate that so much. And I'm so excited this book is coming out. It's going to be amazing. Um, I know, and I know how much heart and soul you poured into this. And I know that, I know that the recipes are going to be so delicious. People are going to be like, wow, it's really this delicious to, to heal this problem. And, um, where else can one, where's the book going to be? Where, okay. where can we get it? It'll be everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> and so. where else can we plug into you, my dear? So the podcast, all that. Yes. So to find the book, you can actually go to SIBOMadeSimple.com and there's some fun pre-order bonuses and some things that will probably be available after the fact as well. I'm doing a whole series of low FODMAP cooking classes. So if you pre-order the book, you will get access to one of my live classes to cook with me in person. It's very fun. And also my five-day gut heal boot camp, which you could start on your own at your own pace as a lead up to the book. 
then you can find me and my recipes at feedmephoebe.com. You'll also find all the old podcast episodes for SIBO Made Simple there. And yeah, I have a lot of websites. And there's also the wellnessproject.com, which has my courses and some low FODMAP meal plans for, again, those who just want resources right here, right now, you can go there. Wonderful. Yay. Well, we'll have those in the show notes. We'll make sure you guys will steer you in the right direction, wherever you want to go. And thank you so much, Phoebe, for coming on and sharing your truth today, sharing your beautiful book with us today and helping to guide us through this complication that can happen inside of our gut. Thank you so much for having me. I personally loved the real talk that Phoebe brought to the table, especially because she has gone through her own journey and paints the picture of amazing possibility for healing SIBO and a lot of gut dysbiosis. I think that's one of the beautiful things about creating a book that she's created is yes, she's addressing SIBO, but it can also help to heal a lot of other gut issues as well. So if you are someone who is struggling with SIBO or you know someone who is, and you're just, or maybe you're having gut issues and gut dysbiosis, and you're not sure about that diagnosis, it is worth looking into SIBO as well. It's worth checking out this book, that is for sure. Now, when it comes to having a full plan for addressing bacterial overgrowth, I do recommend grabbing Phoebe's new book, SIBO Made Simple. She focuses a lot of her recipes on a kind of an autoimmune protocol, an anti-inflammatory protocol, which can really help clear up a lot of other things that may be going on in the body that are driven with inflammation. So I will have the link for the book in the show notes for this episode. I definitely recommend you checking it out. It is amazing. I have a copy myself. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today for another episode on the Essentially You podcast. If you are loving these episodes, head on over to iTunes or whatever you love to listen to podcasts and leave a quick review. That way, this critical information, especially when it comes to gut health, are reaching out to more women who need to hear it for themselves and their family. Because I know that when I was struggling with digestive issues, I would have loved this information because it would have fast-tracked me in healing my gut much faster. Until next Tuesday, I hope that you're having a wonderful new year so far. See you soon.